You're listening to the Digital Dive Media Podcast, a curation of digital marketing industry news, trends, and other content designed to keep communication professionals informed. I'm your host, Kelly Kelly, founder and CEO of Kelly Brand Communications. Welcome to another episode of Digital Dive Media Podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Kelly. This is episode five, and I'm speaking with Jeff Perkins, CMO of Park Mobile. Park Mobile is the leading provider for on-demand and prepaid mobile payments for on- and off-street parking. So translation, it is the answer to the pain in the behind of having to run out from your event or wherever you are and refill the meter. Um, I remember when Park Mobile first hit Atlanta, it was such a delight to me because that is like such a nuisance to have to leave what you're doing and go refill the meter. So when I found out there was an app that all you had to do was press a button, I was like, this is great. Um, so thank you so much for being with us, Jeff. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. And I wanted to start off, can you give us a little bit of background on your career and how you got started? Sure. So I actually started uh, my career in New York City in the advertising business. So I, uh, I had the good fortune out of college to get a job at a large global agency called Saatchi and Saatchi, and I was assigned to the Procter & Gamble account. So I worked on Tide laundry detergent and Cascade dishwashing detergent, um, all while I was a uh, you know, 20-something who lived in a 300-square-foot apartment without a dishwasher or a laundry machine. Um, so I, I really had to learn a lot about um, how to study a target audience, because I obviously was not, um, was not the target. So I started in advertising, had a great 10-year uh, career that ran from uh, consumer packaged goods to uh, I ended up working on um, the Volvo account. So I was leading digital marketing for Volvo, and I was having a lot of fun, and that was a great experience. Um, and in around um, 2007, uh, my wife uh, and I got, we were pregnant with our first child. And so um, living in Manhattan in a 300 square foot apartment uh, with a baby seemed like something that would be a challenge. And, and right around that time, um, I got a call from a company in Atlanta called autotrader.com. Uh, they had an interesting position. So I was looking to get out of the city. Autotrader uh, seemed to really have something um, Good happening with their company, and so there was a there was a nice fit. So I made the uh, the move from New York City down to Atlanta. Um, I had a great five year run at Auto Trader, and um, since then I've gone on to work at a couple companies. One was called uh, PGI. So I, I went from Auto Trader, where I was you know I was a marketing manager, marketing director. PGI I took on my first vice president of marketing role. Um, that led me to a local startup here called QA Symphony. Uh, that brought me in as CMO, and then um, uh, Park Mobile brought me on as CMO uh, at the end of last year. So this is my second uh, CMO gig, uh, but I've had a, a nice run, and I've, um, I think the, the fun thing about uh, my career uh, is that I've been able to kind of jump between agency side and client side. I've worked in B2B and B2C. I've worked across tons of different industries. Um, and I've worked enterprise and startup, so I've, I've, I feel like I've really kind of seen it all. Um, and and that's I think important for marketers that you're um, you're very agile and you're able to kind of adapt to new environments, to new industries, to new situations, and that's served me very well throughout my career. 
So you've, you've had such a long career, and I think anyone who's been in marketing or communications uh, for any length of time, maybe a decade, has seen so many changes. Um, I started in traditional PR, and I, when I started to see the change that digital was having an impact on business, it, it encouraged me to make some pivots. What was the point in your career that you realized digital was going to be an important function of business? I think it was actually very early on in my career. Um, you know, I, I've always been someone that's been, um, you know, an early adopter of technology. And I remember even growing up, uh, we were the first people in the neighborhood to, to have the internet. And back then it was, we had what was called prodigy internet through the phone line. And then we graduated to AOL. But I was always kind of on, on the forefront of these things where I was always trying them very early on and, and using, you know, things like the internet before it was the internet. Um, and so when I got into um, advertising out of college, uh, a lot of my first um, projects were around television advertising. And, and so I was doing, you know, big budget TV ads for, um, for Procter and Gamble and, and for some of my other clients. And, and that was really fun. But at that time, um, digital advertising was really starting to emerge and that served me well in my career because I was always a digital native. So I really understood digital advertising and what brands needed to do both from a, you know, how they had to build out their websites, um, what they can do from a, you know, a display advertising point of view. Remember back in the, in the mid to late nineties, there was no Google at that time. Yeah. <laughs> and so you were, you were doing a lot of banner ads and, and you were building uh, websites. And I remember uh, working on the Tide account and we built something that was called um, uh, the Stain Detective, which was like an interactive app where you could uh, put in, you know, the kind of fabric that you got a stain on, the kind of stain. So it was a ketchup or red wine. Um, and it would kind of spit out a solution to how to get that stain out of your garment. And at the time it was like revolutionary. Like no one, no one was thinking about using the web for that kind of application. Um, and so it was a, a really cool way to uh, bring a traditional brand like Tide Laundry Detergent online and make it very relevant and useful to consumers. Um, so I started seeing that and early on I kind of pivoted from the traditional advertising to digital. So I I went into um, a company called um, DDB, which is a traditional ad agency, but I went into their digital department there. And I got to work on clients like Mich uh, Michelin and Hasbro. And these are companies that were really trying to figure out digital at, at, a, at a really early time. So that was a, a great opportunity for me to work with some really big clients. Uh, at the same time, really help teach them digital and evangelize digital for them. And for the agency, and and since then I kind of I, I never really looked back. Um, so I I took a job at um, Euro RSCG running digital for Volvo, and that was at a time where actually the digital team was becoming more important to Volvo's business than the traditional advertising team. Wow! Um, if you thought about uh, automotive advertising over time, you'd always think about these big ad campaigns and Super Bowl ads, but really all the attention and all the focus was on digital because digital was driving their business. Digital was driving people into the dealership to do a test drive. And it was very accountable and trackable, uh, unlike some of the traditional media. So, so you know, I've, I've always kind of been highly engaged in digital and I've saw, you know, I've seen 
kind of every iteration from the search engines coming kind of into the fold, then to the, the social media sites coming into the fold. Um, and what's great about it is there's always something new to try. There's, <laughs> there's always something new to test out. Um, and you can test and learn and track. And as a marketing person, you know, um, the, the old way of doing marketing was really you bought, you know, 52 weeks of television and, you know, you would test the television ads and you thought it would work uh, intuitively. And it seemed like as long as business was going up, you, you gave credit to the television ads. Mm-hmm. Um, but with digital, you really had the ability to, to look at attribution on a much more granular level. You know, what kind of leads does a search engine drive versus a social media site versus a content site? Um, so that's, that's really exciting. And, you know, as a, as a, as a marketer, um, being able to, to show the results of your campaigns to your executive team and to your board on a really granular, granular level um, really is, is, is something that gives you as a marketer um, a lot more, you know, it gives you uh, more legs to stand on. It, it helps you. So if you want to go ask for more budget, um, you are able to. Yep. Because you could say, well, we tried this. It worked really well. Here are the results. Here's the revenue it drove. Um, so we want to add more budget, and here's the the case for that. Um, so so it really makes our job as marketers. I think um, uh, it, it makes it doesn't make our job easier, but it helps us make the case in a real way to our executives that we should be spending more money in advertising because you could you can track the ROI, you could track the results you're generating. And so as CMO, when, when your team comes to you with ideas of, of new things they want to try, because things are always changing and maybe they're just keeping a, a pulse on that, what's the best way for them to get you to buy into an idea that's just new and cutting edge? Yeah, you know, my view is, you know, we should be trying everything. And, you know, as long as it's a modest investment, you know, you can't, some things you can't just try. Some things, you know, if you want to buy a new, um, if you if you want to buy a, a technology tool for email, um, that's not something you try. That's a big investment. It has to be very thought out. Um, there has to be a clear process for you, how you evaluate, select a vendor, and then implement. Um, but with a lot of media options out there, um, it's, it's pretty easy to try and, and fairly low cost. So if you want to uh, try out um, campaigns in social media that you can do that on a on a very modest budget and really that you could see right away what the results are if you want to try pre-roll video advertising online if you want to try um, retargeting I mean these are all things that you can do at a, a fairly low cost and probably things you should be doing in testing um, so probably for my team it's not really hard to sell me on testing a new tactic or doing something new or trying something new, you know, as long as the investment is going to be um, is going to be modest, right? You know, the the thing we don't want to do is say, hey, we're going to invest six figures in this new thing. We think it's going to work. <laughs> um, we much rather test our way into new tactics, into new things, so we know going in that well, we think this can drive this amount of revenue based on the testing we've done. Um, so that's how I always look at it. Um, you know, I, I think I think one thing I try to do is take eighty percent of our program budget 
and say, okay, these are the programs that are going to drive the business. These are things that we know work reasonably well. Um, and so we're going to invest 80% of our budget in these programs. But then the other 20% of the budget, you say, all right, this is the budget we're going to use to experiment. This is the budget we're going to use to find the next big tactic that we're going to add into that 80%. Um, and I found that to be a, a very good way to constantly be testing new and interesting ideas. Um, you know, if, you know, when we, you say, all right, I'm keeping this budget here, come to me and make the case for it with all these new things. Um, the team feels kind of empowered to go out and find yeah. a lot of new, um, options for us. So, so that, that's always the way I've approached it. Um, I think, I think brands today just need to be trying all the latest tactics out there, all the, whether it's a new social platform, whether it's a new way to do display advertising, whether it's uh, programmatic buying. I mean, you have to constantly be trying these new things because uh, what I found that uh, sometimes when you're trying them and when you're, especially when you're early on in some of these new tactics, they can work extraordinarily well. One example, um, Google uh, launched uh, a program, this was a couple years ago, but it was in Gmail where basically if people had certain um, terms in their Gmail inbox, you could target those people with advertising. Oh, wow. Um, and so that was pretty cool because you could say, all right, I was at the time working for a company called PGI that made a web conferencing solution. And we were competing very heavily with uh, GoToMeeting. Mm -hmm. And so if I knew people were attending a lot of GoToMeeting meetings, because in their inbox they have a lot of GoToMeeting invites, I can then serve them up with an ad about why we were better than GoToMeeting. And I found that to be a very clever way to use you know, media. Now, um, some people get concerned with that kind of media that there's privacy issues, uh, but we didn't know who those people were. We had no idea. All we knew was in their inbox, they had some mentions of WebEx or GoToMeeting, and so we can then target them. And so for us, that was a, a really interesting tactic and we tried it and we were very early on and the results we were getting were like 10x any other digital result we had at the time. And so we were very excited about that. And I think a big reason why we were getting those great results was because it was so new and not a lot of people were doing it. And then once a lot of other advertisers jumped in, it became less effective over time. Uh, but that's that's one reason why you really want to always be trying these new things because when you are early, uh, you do really have an opportunity to capture um, more attention and get better results. Do you find that at your level, um, other CMOs are starting to adopt that idea more that they just need to try, even if it's not native to them, like it's sort of native to you, other CMOs that maybe in businesses or industries where they didn't come up with it, um, it's a little scary, it's a little unknown. Do, do they share the same thoughts as you or do you see that changing more? Uh, it, it, it's a good question and it's hard. It's a hard question to answer because I, I interact with a lot of CMOs um, I have a, a fairly active peer group and I think everyone's kind of different and it all depends on the business, the industry, uh, their, their budgets, the, the corporate appetite for experimentation. Um, so, so I, I think it, it depends. I think it really depends. Um, I, I do think you see a lot of CMOs today, not necessarily always trying to experiment or trying to do new things, but trying to do things 
that are going to help them uh, make a stronger case for the value of marketing within the organization and for the revenue or leads that marketing could provide to the organization. Um, that's, that's a big change that I've seen with CMOs maybe 15 years ago and today. Um, CMOs are much more revenue focused, uh, much more results focused um, than maybe they were in the past when you didn't have the ability to track like you do today. Right. Um, so, you know, when you're, um, when you're a CMO, you really, you know, your, your job is not just to, you know, be the, the builder of the brand anymore. Um, your job is to really be the driver of the business and be the person that is um, really looking at all the ways that you could, you know, impact the business, that you can help the sales team, and that you can help the company make their number. What's the most uncomfortable thing you've done to grow business? Um, probably, probably the most uncomfortable thing I've done, um, and this was in my, my previous role at um, a company called QA Symphony. We were a, um, you know, we were a startup. We were, you know, when I joined the company, we had about a million dollars in revenue and we were a challenger brand. We were, we didn't have as many customers as a lot of the other um, brands in the category. And so we were pretty aggressive and we were pretty scrappy. And um, one of the things that, that happened um, early on in my tenure there was that we were, we were seeing one of our competitors was um, they were buying um, search engine ads and they were kind of doing a little bit of a deceptive practice where they were presenting a search engine ad uh, as as though you would think it was an ad from QA Symphony, and they were driving to their own landing page. Oh, oh wow! Um, so if someone searched for QA Symphony, they would have an ad that said, "Hey, learn about QA Symphony here," and then you would get to their landing page that would be about how they're better than QA Symphony. Now, um, it's a it's a bit of a um, uh, there's some gray areas in search engine marketing, and some people, uh, you know, if, if if you're not watching it, some people might do that and might get away with it. Um, you know, we had a trademark brand term, so really they were using that in their advertising, which is not allowed by Google. Uh, and so we were, we were looking at these ads and we said, wow, um, we should uh, contact Google and make sure that we get these ads taken down right away. And, um, and so we, we did that, but we knew that would take a little bit of time as Google, you know, did their research and tried to figure this out. So um, what I decided to do to be a little bit more aggressive was to publicly shame them on social media. Uh, so I, I, from my personal Twitter account, um, just started taking screenshots and uh, tweeting to this company, asking them why they were doing this. Tweeting to executives of Google and saying, hey, why are you letting this company do this? This is, this is bait and switch. Um, and so, and then I, the company started coming back and saying, you know, accusing me of uh, that I was lying and this is not, they weren't doing this. Um, whereas I had, you know, screenshot evidence that they were doing this. Um, so, so I, I really went after this company and then other people who were influencers in the industry started seeing this and weighing in on it. And, um, and it, it was kind of funny because the company that I was, I was just, just knocking, um, they had horrible grammar in their Twitter. Uh, so, so they were, had typos and I was making fun of them for their typos. Uh, now I was doing this all in good fun. And, and I, my objective was to get these ads taken down. And by the next day, those ads were all down. 
so right. mission accomplished. <laughs> so that was a little bit uncomfortable um, to put myself out there and to directly call out a competitor. Um, but it was also very effective in getting them to take the advertising down. Now, what was, um, what was really uncomfortable is when I was at a trade show a couple weeks later and I got confronted by the CMO of this competitor and we almost had a fight in the middle of the trade show. Yes. That, was, that was kind of uncomfortable too. Um, but, but you know, when you're a small company, uh, sometimes you can take those chances. And when you're a challenger brand, wow. you can do those kind of things and uh, be more aggressive and really, um, but at the end of the day, you know, my goal was pretty simple. Like I, I, I wanted them to take those ads down. I, and I, I legitimately did not think it was fair of them to do ads like that. Yeah. I thought it was bait and switch. I thought it was bad practice. And uh, really, it's not allowed by Google. So, you know, I felt in a lot of ways I was within my rights <laughs> to kind of call them out. And, and you know, it helped us because we got some exposure. Um, looking back at it, you know, because uh, you, know, you always, when you do stuff like that, you always have to, um, you know, take stock and think about it. Was that the right thing to do? I think, I think it was, um, it was an effective thing to do probably from a, uh, you know, in getting them to take the ad down. I think if I had to do it again, I might do it the same way, but um, <laughs> it might also, it, you know, like with my company now, we're a bigger company. Yeah. Or, um, you know, I would probably just uh, reach out directly to the CMO at the competitor and say, hey, uh, we're seeing this. Um, you know, I'd appreciate it if you would take these ads down. Because, you know, but, uh, but man, when you're in a startup and you want to be scrappy, you could do yeah. things like that. That's pretty savage, but I mean, it works. So <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> So which industry thought leaders are you keeping up with and why? Yeah, it's a great, um, it's a great question. So the, the people I like um, in the industry, I think Gary Vanderchuk is, um, you know, I, I, I love his uh, video podcast. I love his content. His books are great. Um, you know, I think um, marketers should read what he's doing because, uh, you know, again, He's, he's someone who built a business, not in a traditional way with television advertising and, and building a huge brand, but just through, um, you know, just bootstrapping it and through finding kind of interesting, innovative ways to get people's attention and engage with consumers. So he's great. Um, it, I always encourage people to follow um, thought leaders like Jill Rowley, who's a, a, actually a sales thought leader. Um, and I think she, you know, marketing and sales alignment is so important today. So I think for marketers, she's a, a really important voice in the industry. Um, you know, I'm friends with a guy named Sangram Vajre, who's, uh, works here in Atlanta. He's the CMO or the, the co-founder of Terminus. Um, and he is really one of the pioneers in account-based marketing. So for companies that are doing B2B, uh, really account-based is, is really the way people are, are targeting and prospecting clients today. So I, I highly recommend um, Sangram. And then, you know, beyond, uh, beyond the traditional marketers, um, you know, I, I think, you know, inspiration comes from, from many different places. And so I, you know, I get as much inspiration sometime from listening to um, podcasts by people like, like Malcolm Gladwell or listening mm -hmm. to, you know, you know, This American Life where they're just, uh, very interesting stories that really make you think and that make you question um, things that you thought were true. So, I, you know, I think, you know, um, if you're just going to read marketing and sales books all the time, you're, 
you're going to kind of get stuck in a mindset. So I also think it's good to, you know, expand your your intellectual mindset and, and your curiosity to to lots of different topics and to be kind of a well versed in a lot of different uh, a lot of different areas. Now, in terms of specific industry news related to marketing and digital, what are you consuming to help you keep a leg up on the competition? Are there like websites that you go to on a regular? What are you consuming? You know, it's it's interesting. So I, I read a lot of industry news. Um, you know, basically through um, kind of like any, any you know, I, I kind of have alerts set up around marketing topics, and I actually find that's that's better than just going to the same you know websites. You know, I think there are websites that are just great. Marketing Profs is great. HubSpot's blog is mm-hmm. uh, insanely good. Yeah, um, it's interesting because. Today, what you find is a lot of the brand blogs are actually just as good or better than the traditional marketing content providers, um, which is kind of an interesting <laughs> shift in in the industry. Um, you know, so I'll, I'll always look at you know, and I have Google alerts set up for key topics, and as they come in, and I see articles that I think are are interesting, I'll you know, I'll I'll engage with them. Um, what's what I find to be more valuable than just reading industry news, though, is having a good peer network that you're constantly in touch with, and you're you're hearing what they're doing. One of the one of the challenges with um, just kind of focusing on reading blogs or reading news is that it, you're always reading a perspective from from an editorial team that that they have that they want to provide, right? Right. So you know if. They, you know, if, um, you know, Ad Age wants to write about, you know, hot topics, you know, and that, that's kind of what they'll always focus on. And, and there tends to be a, a um, people focus on things that are, you know, cooler and sexier, but aren't necessarily things that are going to help a CMO drive their business. Right. Uh, and so having that peer group uh, and being able to have you know lunches and, and drinks and breakfasts and coffees on a regular basis with people and pick their brains about what they're doing, what tools they're using, what challenges they have. That's really, for me, the the thing that provides the most value. In, now, in- how did how did you develop the peer group? Is and how structured is it? Is it just is it more informal or is it formal? You guys have certain dates set. I've been in formal peer groups in the past. Um, I was in a CMO group uh, about a year ago, and, and that was good. Um, unfortunately, uh, some, you know, when you're in these CMO groups, sometimes you know, if you travel a lot or your schedule is unpredictable, a lot of times you're going to miss the meetings, and that's right. kind of what happened to me. Is I just I kept missing too many meetings, so it wasn't worth it to continue in the group. Um, but What's what's really uh, what what I find is just making the time to to constantly have these lunches and drinks and coffees with the people who you respect in the industry, or even just jumping on the phone call if um, you know if you're dealing with a tough issue. Um, and, and you know the one thing that I do, you know, I have a, a email distribution list. Of, of people that I respect in the marketing field, mostly in the Atlanta area. And if I have a job opening on my team, if I'm struggling with a decision on, you know, what technology tool I want to buy or, or even what technology tools I should be evaluating, um, I'll always just throw it out there to this peer group. Uh, and I, I have had really good luck. Um, someone I hired here right away when I joined the company 
he came through that email. I sent an email out to this list. Um, he was uh, he was recommended, and then it ended up working out. So there's there's formal ways to get involved with a peer group. There's informal ways, but I, I think the the most important thing as you are growing your career as a marketer is to just have a really strong network. And that's not something that you're just going to get because you want to have a strong network. It's something you have to make time for and something you really have to work at. And so it's just been something in, in my career that I've really, I've made a priority. Um, you know, usually a week doesn't go by where I'm not at least having uh, a breakfast or lunch or something with, with one of the people that are in my kind of my circle. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's really helped me. And I think that probably has been, honestly, it's probably been one of the, the, the most helpful content sources um, that's helped me drive decisions that I make every day. So I'd highly recommend that to everyone to kind of build that peer network and build that peer group and, and just keep in touch and, and use them as a sounding board for, for things you're working on. Well, it was a pleasure speaking with Jeff Perkins, CMO of Park Mobile. Thank you so much for your time, Jeff. All right. Thanks, Kelly. If you enjoyed today's show, please share, subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Digital Dive Media Podcast, and I'll see you in the next episode.